0: From PRX.
1: Today on Studio 360, what energizes the legendary
0: filmmaker Werner Herzog? Sometimes, uh, when I don't know uh, how to order my thoughts, I switch on crazy cat videos and immediately I'm rejuvenated.
1: We talk a lot about cat videos, the art of narration, and his latest movie, Meeting Gorbachev.
2: Plus, from the first time you heard this song, it was just absolutely mind-melting.
1: The story behind When Doves Cry, which Prince released, prepare to feel old, 35 years ago this week. This is what it sounds like, ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Three I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is writing. Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, paste. Very well done. Editing is all
2: about timing.
0: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson.
1: Herzog has made more than 60 movies. They're often about man versus extreme forces. The Amazonian jungle in Fitzcarraldo, active volcanoes in the documentary Into the Inferno. His latest film, Meeting Gorbachev, also fits into that frame. It's the story of Mikhail Gorbachev versus a crumbling political and economic system.
3: Мы провожаем последний путь Константину Черненко.
1: Over a six-month period last year and the year before, Herzog went to Moscow and interviewed the very last president of the Soviet Union.
0: Mikhail Sergeyevich, I am a German, and the first German that you probably met wanted to kill you.
4: (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. Herzog and a co-director, Andrei Singer, combine interviews with lots of archival footage to tell the story. Of the one Soviet leader, almost everybody in America and the West liked, even adored. And the film is all held together by Herzog's signature narration.
0: Here, his home village as it looks today. It is hard to imagine that from such a godforsaken place in the middle of nowhere, one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century emerged.
1: And Werner Herzog is here with me now to talk about meeting Gorbachev. Sir, welcome back to Studio 360.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So you filmed three long conversations with Gorbachev. How did you
0: prepare for those? Mostly reading. I did a lot of homework. I read uh, Gorbachev's memoirs. I wrote a most excellent biography by William Taubman, Otherwise, I arrived without paper in my hands. I didn't have a catalog of questions Uh that I would rattle down. It was just a conversation from man to man carried on by curiosity. Wherever it was going to lead me or us uh, was unknown. The,
1: The film talks about how Gorbachev is beloved and considered a hero by many Germans. And obviously being A German, a West German at the time. You must have paid keen attention to the Soviet Union at that moment.
0: Sure. And among other things, when Germans' reunification was somehow abandoned, given up, the real, real big thing about reunification is it came without bloodshed. It came without violence. Gorbachev allowed it peacefully. His predecessors would send tanks in and, and suppress the liberation movements of of countries like Hungary, Poland, East Germany, you just name it. Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Is just, that was the attitude of the Soviet right. Union. And Gorbachev was completely different in his approach.
1: And East and West Germany had been separate countries for essentially your entire life. It just must have seemed, being a 40-odd-year-old man, having never known anything else, impossible. That, that, that this was never going to happen.
0: Yes, I personally believed I would not see it during my lifetime. Something of that magnitude would take much more time. Uh, history would be slow, but I was surprised.
1: And when the wall came down in 89, and reunification happens, as you say in the film, so quickly, crazily quickly. What was your feeling?
0: When I heard about the wall coming down, I was in the southern tip of South America on a mountain. And with five days delay through a shortwave radio, I heard that the wall had come down. And it's this kind of joy and this shudder of elation uh, has never left me.
1: I was pleased, given the seriousness of the subject, by the touches of humor in this film, like when they're cutting down, ceremonially cutting down the barbed wire between Austria and Hungary. And, and you spend a long time showing uh, this bit of the Austrian nightly news that night. I'm going to play
0: that clip. Visibly for the entire world, the iron curtain started to be lifted. However, Austrian evening news was clueless about the magnitude of the event. Their lead story was about slugs. It's very funny because they advise you to fill a bowl with beer and slugs as lovers of beer would crawl it, get drunk, and uh, you could harvest them in the morning. And then under miscellaneous, much later or so, the woman comes to mention that the iron curtain <laughs> was was being lifted. <laughs> so it, it points to that sometimes uh, news are completely clueless. Yes. In other news, the Cold War is over. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> Do you feel as though humor is is central to your sensibility as a filmmaker, as a creator? Uh,
0: well, I think there's humor in almost all of my films, and I've been labeled as a grim Teutonic sort of, uh, God knows, warrior who who is determined to risk his life and all all this all this kind of nonsense. So uh, what you spotted is that there's a lot of humor in Gorbachev and, of course, a lot of humor in other films.
1: Yeah. I want to talk more about your narration and how you do it. Do you begin with some rough draft or
0: do you make the film first? No, I n- neither nor. I write the text spontaneously during uh, editing. And I now hear I have to explain something and I write it down instantly. And in the editing room, I have a very professional microphone and I speak the commentaries right then and there while I'm proceeding. And sometimes I notice, oh, the text overlaps into the next scene. It's three seconds too long. So I would uh, delete one or two words and rephrase it a little bit and speak it again and it would fit.
1: That's amazing. So literally, as you are cutting scenes together, you're coming up with the necessary narration and recording it simultaneously. Yes,
0: yes exactly, yes. That's wow. what I do. That's extraordinary. Well, I realize that audience is like uh, the way I narrate. and not It's not only my voice. It is the text, the context that I create, the observations that I make. So I'm writing the commentaries and I'm speaking them and and it makes a lot of sense and gives a coherence to films that uh, they would otherwise not have.
1: And and is someone there directing you? You know, saying, "Hey, Werner, let's let's do another take of
0: that." No, uh, with the exception of the editor, he uh, is the only one who would tell me, "The phrase doesn't sound right. The grammar is a little bit crooked. Why don't you?" Change the order of words, or so he says to me, pronunciation of the word should be different in in English. So I, I do have help, and I seek advice.
1: That's amazing, and also it's, I'm 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 struck by how demystifying you are of the process.
0: There's nothing mysterious about filmmaking; it's just professional work. Period.
1: Here is a a great example of that work from your film Grizzly Man, one of my favorites. This is some of the last footage shot by the subject, Timothy Treadwell, uh, a grizzly bear enthusiast. It's it's a close-up of one of his
0: bears. And what haunts me is that in all the faces of all the bears that Treadwell ever filmed, I discover no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature. To me... There is no such thing as a secret world of the bears. And this blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. But for Timothy Treadwell, this bear was a friend, a savior. In a way, and that makes a film different and unique, I as a filmmaker have an ongoing argument with Treadwell. Sometimes Treadwell says something very new agey and uh, how fluffy these bears are and mm-hmm. you've got to hug them and you have to sing to them. And and here, all of a sudden, I chime in and I say, here, I differ with Treadwell. In my opinion, uh, wild nature is different. It's uh, chaotic and and dangerous and murderous, not fluffy like in Walt Disney movies. So... I just have an argument with him.
1: You didn't always narrate your films. In fact, in your early films, there were other people doing narrations. I th- believe it was the the great ecstasy of Woodcarver Steiner uh, in the 70s that was your first yes. uh, first one you narrated. Here's a bit of that.
0: For me personally ist er der größte den es jemals gegeben hat.
1: So, what what made you decide to start doing that? 45 years ago.
0: Well, I didn't. Yes, I didn't decide it. Uh, It was the signature of a TV series. All the other films have their filmmaker appear in the film and giving the chronicle. So not only my voice had to be in it, I had to be physically on screen as well. I hated it at the beginning. And and then I I thought when the film was finished, uh, I should do at least voice myself I felt uncomfortable, but I had the feeling afterwards, there was something good about it. Steiners erster jump, 20-fach verzögert.
1: Wow, your your voice was so much higher. Um, you know how Americans feel now about Werner Herzog's narrations. Do, do Germans hear your German narration and think, eh, nothing special about that?
0: Uh, no, since I speak my own mother tongue, uh, It doesn't really stick out like a sore thumb. And in German, of course, yes, you you sense that my first language was Bavarian dialect. It's like, let's say, Texan drawl. You recognize he must come from Texas or he must come from Bavaria.
1: Right. The earliest uh, one documentary of yours that I can find that you narrated in English was Herdsmen of the Sun, which is uh, about a nomadic uh, tribe in the Sahara. This is a clip.
0: Here in the Republic of Niger, the Vodabe have gathered for their annual celebration of Kiri Towards the end of the rainy season, in the month of September, tribal meetings are held all over the half-desert.
1: Now we hear that and we go, oh, of course, Werner Herzog. That's what he does. But when you first started narrating 30 years ago, was there any pushback from U.S. distributors?
0: I can't really say so there was a very quick acknowledgement that audiences uh, feel comfortable and they like the way I make things clear. You really understand what I'm saying Uh, although I speak with an accent, with a heavy accent, not as heavy as for example Kissinger (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) that's true, that's true But um, audiences responded um, favorably and That's always a good sign. Your voice is part of the attraction. Yes, and you can tell uh, that it's very easy to uh, make satires and to imitate my voice. You see the internet is full of imposters.
1: Do you know, there's a comic actor and writer, Paul F. Tompkins, who has done one. Uh, Do you know it? No, no. Let me play a bit for you uh, and see what you think. This is him doing the character on uh, Andy Daly's podcast. Okay.
0: If you don't mind, I've just uploaded this review to Yelp. This is the Trader Joe's on Hyperion.
1: (laughs) uh.
2: Madness reigns. (laughs) Inside, human beings
1: scrambled like beetles whose rock has been upended. Though the aisles are wide, it is impossible to avoid physical contact with your fellow shoppers. It is a grotesque parody of the bazaar at Marrakesh, as if dumb animals had been granted only the amount of sentience required to mock humanity. (laughs) Be sure to get the dark chocolate peanut
2: butter cups, they are right by the register.
0: What do you make of that? Well, the accent could be better, but it's a very funny text. That's that's good stuff. I I thought so, too. I thought so, too. What's his name? Paul F. Tompkins. My congratulations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You also have played yourself and characters on Parks and Recreation and on shows like Rick and Morty and The Simpsons. Thank you for the tour of
0: your factory, Mr. Wonka. I am not Willy Wonka.
1: No, no,
5: you're Augustus Gloop, the fat German boy.
0: Yeah, it is true, I am Gloop.
1: Does that sideline as a comedic actor sort of parodying yourself? Uh, I assume you don't do that just for the paycheck. It must be fun. Uh,
0: It is, uh, and I know I'm good. What I'm doing, I'm good, so my program is limited. I'm always good as a villain for example, but it's good to have some, I wouldn't say self-parody, but some some uh, humor about your own self and sometimes uh, roles like uh, in Jack Reacher where I play the real badass, bad guy. I had to, and I was paid for it, I was, had to be as frightening as it gets. And I did my best and I think I was frightening. A man this rare can always be of use. So show me. Show me you're rare. Show me you'll do anything to survive. And it's good to depart from what I do and uh, be under the guidance of a a different director. Uh, Before
1: we go, uh, for a while I've wanted to ask you about a surprising thing um, we have in common. Which is a fondness for internet cat videos.
0: Yes, I agree. Sometimes uh, when I come home and I'm tired and I don't know uh, how to order my thoughts, I switch on crazy cat videos and immediately I'm rejuvenated. Do you own a cat? Yes, uh, we found, uh, my wife found a cat that was just about eaten by a coyote. So we took in an orphan. And the cat is very social, very sweet. When I watch soccer on weekend mornings, German soccer, the cat would immediately come in and sit next to me and lean on me and watch with me. Are
1: there particular kinds of videos of cats
0: you especially like? I saw one recently where a man plays uh, the piano piano. And a cat is in his lap, or on, his, on his hands even, and reaches out to his face and, and touches him very softly, even embraces his face with both paws and, uh, I mean, loiters and lingers and, and enjoying the music and enjoying the, the man who creates the music. It's just very touching, not crazy, but totally touching. I haven't seen that. I'm, I'm going to go look it up this instant. You find some stunning gems among them, and, and they just make your day.
1: <laughs> and, and why do you think that is? What is it about cat videos? I don't about?
0: know. There's something mysterious. There's something utterly, profoundly mysterious and hilarious about cats. They're just going wild, and I love them for that.
1: Werner Herzog, this has been an even greater pleasure than I expected. Thank you very much, and congratulations on the new film.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Meeting Gorbachev is in theaters now. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are doing a live Studio 360. That is to say, Studio 360 with a live audience. It'll be on the afternoon of Saturday, June 8th in New York City, and you can join us. It's part of a full day of live podcasts and performances with our partners at Slate. If you're part of the audience for Studio 360, you'll see me with our special guests, Rami Youssef, the comedian and actor from the new Hulu sitcom Rami, the great comedy singing duo Friends Who Folk, and a performance by the band Yola Tango. Again, that's Saturday, June 8th, and you can get tickets just for Studio 360, or you can get an all-access pass for all the shows that day, either one at slate.com slash live.
3: Come. And coming up right now. When you're an episodic television director, you're walking into a show that has a past, it has a present, it has a future.
1: How directing television shows is sometimes like being late to the party and hosting the party at the same time.
3: Your job as the director is to add where you can, but the bottom line is the show still needs to look like the show every week.
1: The A list comedy director Beth McCarthy Miller explains what she's done for shows like SNL, Parks and Rec, Modern Family, Blackish, Veep, and 30 Rock.
0: This is Werner Herzog here uh, listening to Studio 360 we may eventually come back. Studio 360
1: You can probably name at least five living movie directors off the top of your head. Maybe ten or twenty. They are considered the auteurs. Whether or not they wrote the scripts, the films are considered their vision. But... Name a TV director. Name three TV directors. If you can name five, you almost certainly work in show business. In television, it's the writing showrunners who get the credit. But directors of episodic TV are considered more a part of the creative team. Particularly in TV comedy, directing is a very collaborative effort. Very few auteurs.
3: I think it's very unusual when someone can do comedy completely on their own and be hugely successful at it for a long period of time.
1: This is Beth McCarthy Miller. She is one of the directors of TV comedy. Having apprenticed in the early days of MTV, she then directed Saturday Night Live for a decade during the Will Ferrell, Tina Fey years. And the last 20 years, she's directed episodes of half the best sitcoms on television including 30 Rock.
5: Liz Lemon is having a party. And there ain't no party like a Liz
3: Lemon party, because a Liz Lemon party is mandatory.
1: And Parks and Recreation.
3: There are no consequences to my actions anymore. No matter what I do, literally nothing bad can happen to me. I'm like a white male U.S. senator.
1: There's also The Mindy Project, The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Modern Family, Blackish, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Veep, and lately, The Kaminsky Method.
0: So how's your love life? You're still seeing, uh, what's her name? Trisket? Tristan and no. Oh, that's too bad. She was kind of cute. Well, we didn't have much to talk about. You know, she was half my age. Listen, half your age is still an old woman. Fuck you, Norman. Do the math.
1: Since most... Civilians don't really know what a TV director does or how you become one. We decided that Beth McCarthy Miller was the perfect person to explain it all for us.
3: When you're an episodic television director, you're walking into a show that has a past, it has a present, it has a future, it uh, you know has a style, it has a look, and um, most of the time the showrunner, who is the creator of the show, the head writer of the show, is the person that is the keeper of the creativity of the show. And I think your job as the director is to add where you can, but the bottom line is the show still needs to look like the show every week, and the characters need to be true to themselves every week because otherwise you're not doing your job very well, right? Right.
1: I get that. And, and so you have directed big chunks of shows like 30 Rock and and Modern Family, more than 20 episodes, But then on shows like The Mini Project or The Good Place, you do just sort of a walk-on, directing a couple of episodes. How do you get in the groove to be able to direct a show you haven't
3: directed before? If it's a new show and it hasn't been on the air yet, I ask to get as many of the scripts as I can so I can at least read them and know who the characters are, you know, and see how they've been evolving over the season. And when it's an established show, I try to watch as many of the episodes as I can and I also – ask the showrunner to send me three of their favorite episodes and that way I get an idea what the showrunner likes stylistically on the show performances that he likes or he or she likes how dare I do that i can't believe i just said he and
1: did you stumble into being a television comedy director or was or 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 was that a result of your comedic sensibility how does that happen
3: it was a a tad bit of a stumble i was working at mtv and you know, MTV, when I worked there, because I'm an old lady, but when I worked there, I started there in 50-ish, I'm guessing. <laughs> I am. I'm 55. <laughs> um, but... I started as an intern in nineteen eighty-five when I graduated from college and when I started working at the studio, I got a job there that fall was really when MTV started to make TV shows. Um, so it was kind of sink or swim. So when I went to go associate director remote control, there they came up to me and said, Do you know how to AD a, a game show? And I said no and they're like, figure it out. Which yeah. was
1: an MTV game the
3: exactly. MTV exactly. game show. Yes. Exactly.
1: Go ahead, Mary.
5: Let's go back to Data Canadian.
3: Okay, back to Data One. Canadian. It is twenty points. Betty Davis! Miriam. Dead! Dead is correct! It was super fun. It was a really great time, and you kind of got to explore quite a bit, which I don't think any place now you can do that. So I started directing when I was 25, and I did all kinds of stuff. I did a lot of music. I was very into music, but I was also very into comedy. And I started doing the half-hour comedy hour, and I started... Uh, ben Stiller had a show on MTV before he had his uh, show on Fox. I remember it. it was a
1: variety sketch show. And here is a bit of him parroting you um, 2
3: Have you had your
4: to the test and one bowl won't be enough
3: and then uh John Stewart had a late night talk show it's time to bring out my own personal hero please welcome the fabulous William Jack. Yeah. I want I want so desperately
1: desperately to belong if I say man and take my tie off then you we're totally to the in.
5: just whoop! There it is. Hey man, don't worry. See that? Good fun? to see you, man. And hey, I was doing,
3: I was hey, doing this thing.
1: I was a guest on Jon Stewart's late night talk show.
3: Kidding. That's
1: another story. But yes, that's
3: awesome. <laughs> so I did the pilot, and I did the three seasons we did at MTV, and then it got picked up for syndication. And I left with John to do that show full time, and I just always. You know, I gravitated toward funny people. I gravitated toward comedy. And then um, when that show got canceled, I was kind of screwed because I was in New York. It was my first DGA job. I had no contacts. I had no idea. I couldn't go back to MTV.
1: DGA being the director's union.
3: Yes. Sorry. And um, I was kind of panicking. And I got calls from... Letterman was making a directing change at the time and Saturday Night Live was Davey Wilson, who was their longtime director, was retiring and it just was a little bit of luck.
2: John Connery, why don't you pick? Well, the game is afoot.
1: (laughs) I'll take anal bum cover for (laughs) (laughs)
0: $7,000. That's an (laughs) album cover, not
2: anal bum cover.
3: I'm not going to say risk, but it was a big deal for Lorne to hire me. Um, You know, I was a little cable weasel.
1: The executive producer, Lorne Michaels.
3: Yes. But, you know, I certainly wasn't a seasoned network television director. Right. And I was young, and he took a big chance on me, and you
1: were replacing an old
3: I was l- legendary dude. I was <laughs> replacing a legend. It yeah. was really big shoes to fill, yeah. and it was um very difficult, and I was sick to my stomach a lot. but um it was a big deal for him to do that, and I will never ever forget that and he put his trust in me, and that it's amazing and he's been hiring me ever since. So.
1: <laughs> how did it lay the groundwork or not for doing? 30-minute episodic.
3: Oh, Saturday Night Live taught me everything. It taught me how to block and reblock sketches very quickly. You know, we, we make changes between dress rehearsal and air, and we also—they make changes during the air show. Also, every week there was somebody new thrown into the mix, and they weren't always comedians. Right. They were politicians, and they were musicians, right. and they were serious actors. They're sports and figures. they were, yeah. Yeah, uh, and so— um, I think it helped me get different things from different people um, and how to talk to people and get performances out of them and walk into a different situation every week as an episodic director and meeting a whole new cast of people that have a different skill set and – Trying to make it work. You've also, which makes
1: sense given that you did SNL for eleven years, directed a lot of award shows Mm -hmm. and uh, Super Bowl halftime shows, Mm -hmm. including the most famous Super Bowl halftime show of all time in two thousand
3: four. Aren't I a lucky one? The Janet
1: Jackson breast exposure, I
3: did Uh, Nipplegate, I think is what they called it.
1: A word I won't use, but I am happy to have you use it. No, (laughs) it's just it's just it's my whatever fussiness, but
3: wardrobe malfunction. uh, Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, uh, So that was kind of unintentional comedy.
3: You could maybe call it comedy. It wasn't at the time. The FCC received more than 500,000 complaints about that broadcast. CBS was fined $550,000. And then the NFL was asked to refund the $10 million that they had been given to the halftime show sponsor. So Janet says that this is going to be the first and the last time that she ever talks about what happened that day. How did it feel literally at the time? Um at the time when you direct the halftime show at the Super Bowl, you get the field Thursday night only. So you rehearse off stage with the um performer and you only perform you only rehearse on the field Thursday night uh-huh. and you get like 6 hours and part of that is just working with the volunteers to build the stage in the amount of time that you know because I think you have like 6 minutes from when the halftime whistle blows, the commercials coming back to the people and then all of a sudden you're doing the halftime show so you have to rehearse everything in like 6 hours. So um you know it's it's a feat and also you can bring a certain amount of your own cameras but you also need to use show, you know the game cameras. So I had camera 1 and camera 55 and I had camera 4 and camera 36. So it it's kind of crazy when you're directing that. And when that actually happened, It was supposed to be a tearaway skirt that, in rehearsal kept falling up falling. Um, it was like Velcro and it kept coming apart during Rhythm Nation. And Janet had told me they may not even do it, and I said, "Well, I'm going to be on a head-to-toe shot. You just let me know if it's not going to happen." So I never heard anything else. I was on a head-to-toe shot, and I was basically cutting to that shot for like two and a half seconds, then cutting to a wide shot and cueing a huge pyrotechnic extravaganza in the stadium. So I would I cut to that camera, and I was looking at my next camera and cueing things, and I heard everyone behind me gasp. Better, 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 better and I was like, what? What happened? Did I cut to the wrong camera? I didn't even see it. And did you just
1: carry on? I mean, it wasn't the end. Well, I
3: finished. <laughs> yeah. And we went and I rolled everything and we, we got out. And then everyone just sat, you know, kind of dumbfounded in the truck. Did you get any of the blame? Uh, I was deposed. Deposed, really? It's
1: a after? legal thing. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> to me, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I don't know if it would be different 15 years later or not. But, like, that that was as big a deal as this. Like, eh.
3: I, you know, I, it's nuts what it did and it's nuts what, um, how it changed the future of television for quite a while. In and, you what know, sense? Everything had to be on like seven second delays oh, oh, and, oh. you know, it got a little nutty for yeah. a while after that.
1: Yeah. That's before we had a president giving speeches where he says, bullshit. They're
3: trying to take you out with bullshit. I know.
1: God bless them. <laughs> yeah. Um. Did you work with uh, Donald Trump?
3: As I did. Yeah. How was he as a performer? I'm sure you can probably guess. No, I can't. Tell you me. You Can't. He's not going to send you to jail. What did he? What did, How was he? Um. Fine. He was Easy. exactly the way you would expect him to be. Uh-huh. You would ask him to do something. He would say no, and then he'd say, "This is what I'm going to do," and then he'd repeat what you just asked him to do. Oh. Huh. And I'd say, great idea, Mr. Trump.
1: Oh, so that's the secret to, <laughs> yes. to dealing with the president. Interesting. You should direct him as president. Oh,
3: I, think. I don't think I have it in me.
1: <laughs> um, Mindy Kaling said recently in an interview that um, television seemed to be a place where lately uh, more and more women are are directing these days as a, compared to motion pictures. Uh, is that True in your experience?
3: That is very true. There has been a very huge shift and there has been a very big effort by the Directors Guild of America, by um, by showrunners and studios to hire more women.
1: Is that because we now are at peak TV with 400 scripted shows so there's just more room or why is that?
3: Uh, I think because it was so unbelievably um, – bad before (laughs) and there were so few female directors that they have made a concerted effort to try to promote women and get more women in the director's chair
1: so when you started in the 90s you were the only
3: woman around no i don't think so but i think there were very few but i mean there are the women that were around are you know out of my peers, you know, Pam Fryman is an unbelievable, um, you know, half-hour director and Gail Mancuso is an amazing half-hour director. And, you know, look at the women that are doing dramas now between, uh, you know, Leslie Linka-Glatter is just, she's ridiculous. But
1: in a way, I mean, just those names, and I'm sure you could go on with a dozen yes. more, uh, is different than film. I yes, mean, the, the, the the list of women of that stature in movies would be one hand, uh, right? uh, uh, uh.
3: But you know what? Back when I was watching comedy movies, which I loved and I was kind of a comedy nerd, you know, I love the John Hughes movies. But think about it. Amy Heckerling – did Clueless right? Martha Coolidge did uh, Valley Girl. There were some uh, Penelope's fears. Who who made Wayne's World? So there were some women kind of got worse that were doing <laughs> yeah after the eighties and nineties, and yeah. they were doing like fantastic, yeah. amazing, very successful comedy movies. Yeah,
1: not to mention Nora Ephron.
3: Nora, yeah, come on.
1: Well, Beth McCarthy-Miller, this has been uh, both enlightening and a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, good. Thanks so much. Thank you. Beth McCarthy-Miller is now at work directing the second season of The Kaminsky Method
2: on Netflix. Coming up... The guy could play every instrument better than anybody else can play them.
1: The Virtuosity of Prince.
2: That introduction to When Doves Cry, some of the great rock guitar players, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and Slash, and a lot of guitar players have said, I don't know how he does that. I can't play that part.
1: On its 35th anniversary, we look at the making of When Doves Cry. Dig, if you will, the picture next on Studio 360.
3: Studio 360.
1: That, of course, is Prince singing Little Red Corvette. When it came out, it became Prince's most successful single so far. Little Red Corvette was on the album, 1999. And this is the single off the eponymous album, 1999, his first album to reach the top 10 on Billboard's album chart. But that was just a prelude to superstardom. 35 years ago this week, Prince released his first number one song, which stayed there for weeks. It was on the album Purple Rain, and here is the story of that song.
4: Around April of 1983, Prince came to me one morning and commenced to announce to me that he was planning to do a movie and what I thought of that. This is Matt Fink, Dr. Fink from Prince and the Revolution, keyboardist and vocalist.
5: This is Wendy Melvoin, part of Prince and the Revolution, and I was Prince's guitar player. He wanted something that could be his version of A Hard Day's Night, sort of an exaggerated version of his own life story.
3: Prince. The Story.
2: Purple Rain.
5: All he had to do was say, I want to do this. And it was literally six months later, there was a team of people around who were taking notes and helping him take his ideas and turning it into a script.
0: Dead, please. What's the matter with this
5: house? You're crazy. Shut up, Dad.
0: No.
4: It was completely untested waters for him to get into something like that, and you know I expressed my concerns, saying, "Well, you know, we we're doing really well, obviously, and we have had a very successful tour, and this latest album has sold more than any other album." and but do you think we're big enough to do a movie or you're big enough as an artist to do a movie? And he just said, I don't know, but I'm willing to try.
5: First Avenue's really famous. A lot of bands make it after playing there. It must be real exciting.
4: Is that what turns you on?
5: What
2: do you mean? You're making it. It's all I dream about. It makes no sense that this movie got approved and a studio said, go ahead and do this thing. I'm Alan Light, and I'm the author of Let's Go Crazy, Prince, and the Making of Purple Rain. Mick Jagger has tried to make movies, and it doesn't work. Paul McCartney had just, you know, was making a movie that was a kind of a disaster.
0: I'll tell you what, I'll give you a chance. If you're fibbing and you do one thing wrong, you'll be out. If you're straight with me, you'll be in. Yeah, I want to be in. Okay, that's it. You're in.
2: It's not like it's a guarantee that if you're a rock star, you go and make a movie and it's going to be a hit. Nobody believed that this was going to be such a catalyst for the kind of success that it had.
0: Before he created the music, he lived every bit of it.
2: Albert Magnoli, who was the director of Purple Rain, he was editing the movie. They'd been filming through the winter, the movie was gonna come out in the summer, it's March, and he called Prince and he said, I feel like I need to put in a scene that's kind of a montage of Prince's character, the kid, Driving around on his motorcycle and thinking about all of these things that are going on in his life and his tensions with his family and his girlfriend and his band and something that would sort of be this introspective moment where we go inside the character's head. He was asked to come
5: up with another track that would help tie in the narrative of that entire movie.
2: Prince came back the next day...
5: I believe it was a photo shoot that we were all having together. The way I remember it, it was almost like a, not an airplane hangar, but it was somewhere where you could pull cars into. And he pulled in with his limousine, opened the door. You could hear the drums blaring from his car. And he one by one called the revolution in to the back of his limo. And Prince was sitting there and he said, check this out. Listen to the song that I just did for this. And we were all absolutely floored by it. obviously everybody's first comment was where's the bass
4: how come there's no bass on here
5: and he said i kept it out i think it's better without
4: and i go really you're not going to add bass to this he goes nope and i go are you sure about that <laughs> you know so i did i was really questioning it as time went on and i kept listening to the song i realized that that's what made it so unique and it didn't really detract from the song at all
5: The track was much better and it had a better focus on what he was saying without the bass in the track. He was very smart about it. It became more tribal, and that his voice became more of the focus. The product, what came from it, is proof in the pudding. When you listen back to it, you're listening to his vocals straight up.
2: A moment that I will remember for certainly all of my music listening life was the premiere, the radio premiere of When Doves Cry. It's the year that I graduated high school. It's particularly sort of vivid and neon bright in my imagination. I remember staying up, having the tape recorder set for the radio to be able to record that first playing right at midnight. And from the first time you heard this song, it was just absolutely mind-melting. this incredible guitar tone, this really sort of grinding industrial feel to it. Running into school the next day with the cassette of this song and just listening to it over and over and over again. When Dove's Cry was recorded entirely by himself, playing all the parts. And in some ways, one of the central things about Purple Rain was he made an active decision that said, if I'm going to become a huge star, I really can't be this sort of mad genius working by myself in the basement.
5: Every time we give you a song, you say you're going to use it, but you never do. You think we're doing something behind your back. Probably dropped it under his bike and rolled over it.
2: There's something that's going to translate differently if I'm a leader of a band and a very willfully put together band that was mixed race and mixed gender, that's going to translate to a whole other audience and a much bigger audience than what his more r and b based recordings had been.:
4: It's a song um, the girls in the band wrote Lisa and Wendy. Yes. For that particular album, the Purple Rain soundtrack, half the album was recorded with the band. If he had some of those songs done that we hadn't recorded with him, he'd say, here's the cassette, go ahead and learn it.
2: Of course, the challenge there is the guy could play every instrument better than anybody else can play them. That introduction to When Doves Cry, that guitar introduction... some of the great rock guitar players, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and Slash, and a lot of guitar players have said, I don't know how he does that. I can't play that part. The sort of classical keyboard coda that comes at the end.
4: Prince took the analog two-inch tape machine. He actually slowed the tape down half speed. And then he played the synthesizer solo at half the speed of how it sounds on the record. And then when you speed the tape back up, that's what you get. We would just learn it by ear, and if we had any issues with parts or anything, he would help out with those.
2: Even if he was opening himself up more to... Trying to collaborate more, to trying to play nicer with others, there still was this sense of he was just capable of things that nobody else could do.
5: That experience for me personally was like getting my PhD. It was the best school of my life. Just being a part of it, I didn't mind the hours, I didn't mind the seven days a week. I knew I was a part of something really big. At the time when When Dove's Cry was being released as the first single, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that that was going to be the anchor to push this film Purple Rain.
2: The movie made back its budget opening weekend. It was the first time in history anybody simultaneously had the number one single, number one album, and number one movie in the country at the same time. To be able to do something that's that experimental and that bold and have it be that popular and connect that universally, you know, it's just unbelievable. It takes an artist of that magnitude to be able to pull that off.
1: The author and music journalist Alan Light talking about Prince, whose song When Doves Cry came out 35 years ago this week. We also heard from Wendy Melvoin and Matt Fink, better known as Dr. Fink, who were members of Prince and the Revolution. That story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. When Doves Cry has been covered in just about every genre imaginable. This version was recorded just a couple of weeks after Prince died in 2016. It was organized by a group called Choir, Choir, Choir. It took place in Toronto, and fittingly, it consisted of 1,999 singers. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is...
0: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
1: Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is...
2: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve.
1: Our producers are... Evan Chung.
5: Lauren Hansen.
1: Sam Kim.
5: Zoe Saunders.
1: Tommy Bizarriot. Our production assistant is...
3: Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. You would ask him to do something. He would say no, and then he'd say, this is what I'm going to do, and then he'd repeat what you just asked him to do. Thanks for listening. PRI
1: Public Radio International Next time on Studio 360...
5: Pardon me, is everybody here? Because if everybody's here, I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I'm a
1: masterclass on the musical theater staple,
2: The Patter Song. The Patter Song is like a tap dance. You have to lean forward. You have to listen. You're just entertained so much. Tony-winning Broadway composer
1: David Yazbek, next time on Studio 360.
5: Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual. Everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard which is followed by a honeymoon, we suddenly here.